Well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. It's good to be here. How are we doing? Ooh, thanks for venturing out uh, in this gross weather today. If it's your first time here to Mercy Hill, I just want to say welcome. My name is Timmy, and I'm the, the salt director here at Mercy Hill Church, which is our college ministry. We meet on Thursday nights. We love you, C. Xavier, Cincy State, all the schools around here. So if you're not involved in something like that and looking for something like that and you're a college student, come check it out. We got one left this semester, December 2nd. We'll have pancakes. So that'd be a blast. Uh, when I was a, a sophomore in high school, um, I, I played on the soccer team and, and our coach would, would gather us regularly and, and, and he'd have these, these intense meetings with us, okay? And uh, we had just won the state championship the year before. And so he, would, he wanted us to stay focused. And I remember one day he gathered this, this meeting and we're all, we're all in the, the room together and he, he gives us this, this speech, okay? And the speech was basically this. He, he said, uh, don't do anything dumb, okay? He probably said that 10 times, but he didn't say it enough. And uh, the reason why he, he would say, don't do anything dumb is, is he didn't want us to, to, to do something dumb outside of soccer practice and then get hurt and not be able to play or to get in trouble with the school and have to be suspended and miss games. And so that was the big speech. And, and then the very next day, okay, one day later, I am in, in class, and I did do something dumb. Uh, I, I was recently told this inappropriate joke, and so rather than just tell a student next to me, which would have been wrong in and of itself, I decide, let's go tell the teacher in front of the whole class, and I did, and of course the class, you know, they, they erupt. They loved it, okay, but five minutes later, I'm in the disciplinarian's office, and by the time I got home from school, I had to miss the next five weeks of soccer games. Uh, I let my team down. I got my butt chewed up by my coach, as I should have, because in the moment I chose my sin and to gratify my flesh over something so much more important, which would have been walking in obedience to Christ. And so if you've been with us uh, this, this, since we started our, our new series in Ephesians, Extreme Makeover, we've been talking about what it looks like to live in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of the good work that he's done for us on the cross. And so last week, Ernie walked us through a paragraph in Ephesians 4 where we, we, we talked about the things that Paul encourages believers to take off, what we should stop doing. And now we're gonna talk about tonight the things that we should begin to embody and put on. In other words, how we should live in light of Christ's work and who he's made us to be. Okay, so we'll be in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there. There should be a Bible underneath your, your chair or your neighbor's chair. You can steal theirs. Um, and we'll be Ephesians 4, verse 25. I'm just gonna summarize our, our paragraph for us. And I'm trying to emphasize the point here. So here we go, verse 25. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, verse 26, be angry and do not sin, Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, your mouths. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you. Verse 32, be kind to one another. And I bet many of you are thinking right now, okay, Tim, this is what I've heard billions of times throughout my life growing up in church. Don't do these certain things. And you know what? I've never been able to not do it, and it's just been a crushing weight and exhausting. Or maybe you're on the other side, and some of you feel 
Uh, actually, I look at this list and I, I think I don't really have much to improve on because you're blinded by your pride. Okay, both of these are wrong ways to view this. And before we even begin to talk about Paul's paragraph of what it looks like for Christians to begin to walk in obedience, I just wanna point out three common barriers that I believe myself, that I bet many of you have, that have kept me as a Christian from wanting to walk in the new life that God has called me to. So point out three of them. The first one is this. We call holiness legalism, okay? This is something that keeps us from walking in obedience to Christ when we call holiness legalism. Listen to me, Christians. Legalism or holiness is not legalism. It's not the same thing. Being passionate about being obedient to Christ in every aspect of our life is not legalism. It's worship. It's worship. I know I've thought thoughts like this and maybe you have before, but I don't wanna be one of those holier than thou types of people. I don't wanna be like that. I wanna come off that way, but I, I think what I've done is I've gotten legalism and holiness confused, okay? The desire to be obedient to Jesus as a result of what he's done for us on the cross and who he's made us to be is a good thing. This is a worshipful response, okay? Legalism is the idea that God has, has given me this, this overarching set of rules and the more that I obey him, and the more that I keep his commands, then God will be happier with me and pleased with me. And then the more that I disobey them or fail in them and fall short, then God is all of a sudden angry at me. He's no longer pleased with me. And this is legalism and it's exhausting. It's not the gospel. And the problem is, is that when we believe that God loves us more, by based on what we do or don't do, it puts all the work on ourselves. And this is basically what most religions in the world teach, that, that a God is, or God's is up here and we're down here and the more that we do, and if we do enough good things or we're better than the people around us or, or we don't do certain things, then God will look at us and accept us and let us into the afterlife or, or whatever, but that's not, that's not true. And when we have this kind of, and we, we, we compare legalism and holiness as if they're the same thing, it's gonna hinder us from wanting to walk in obedience to Christ. It's not, it's not. The next one that keeps us from wanting to follow Jesus is when we, we don't know what should drive our pursuit of holiness. In other words, we don't have a clear understanding of why we should pursue holiness. You see, for Christians, what we believe about Jesus should dictate the way that we choose to live, the things that we choose to partake in and not partake in. It is painfully sad when you see a Christian person who is striving to live a Christian life but doesn't quite understand why he should or should not be or, or should be living that way. Does that make sense? We shouldn't just try to be obedient to God because it's the, the Christian thing to do. We need to know that there are some things that Christ has done before, some biblical truths, mainly what he's done for us on the cross and who he's made us to be through that gracious work, that now we can live this way. And if we don't pursue holiness as a result of what Christ has done for the cross, if the gospel isn't what is compelling us or motivating us to live differently, then we're really gonna feel exhausted. We're gonna feel burnt and spent. 
and it's toxic and you're going to want to give up. Maybe that's been your experience with church in the past. Just two days ago, Dylan, who, who works with me in Saul Company, called me with some fantastic news, and he said uh, that there's another student, another freshman who has, has come to know Jesus. And so, praise God, we can celebrate that. Um, he, he's been coming to Salt Company. He's, he's a freshman at UC, and he's been coming to Salt Company since we started in August. And both Dylan and I were not sure where he was with the Lord. And so Dylan met up with him and, and you know, was, was talking with him or whatever. And, and we know that he's been loving to come to Saul, but we also knew that he, he didn't grow up going to church. And, and so Dylan asked him a great question that you could probably take note of if you want to figure out where someone is with God. And he said, hey, bro, like, can I ask you something? You know, none of us are promised tomorrow. If, if you die and you sit before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And so the student responds to Dylan and says, that's a man, that's a great question. Um, nothing that I've done. I don't deserve it. But only because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross. Him taking my punishment, my sin upon himself, being punished for it, and then being raised again. And God promises those who look to him and trust in him, they will have eternal life. So that's the answer that he gave Dylan. And Dylan's like, that's awesome. Like, that's, that's just spat the truth. That's great. When did that first make sense to you? When did God save you? When did when were your eyes opened? And he said, oh, dude, before coming to Salt Company, I would never have known that. Never have known that. And then I tell you this because he goes on to tell Dylan, he says, and you know what? Bro, like, it, it sounds kind of sad, but I couldn't even tell you what, what the Ten Commandments are. I, I couldn't even name them to you. And Dylan responded, which was awesome. I want to read it just to make sure. He said, hey, bro, what you know about Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross is so much more important because that's what's gonna drive and motivate us to want to live differently. And if we get those out of order, it'll be all kind of whack and, and we'll be exhausted. And so, um, man, holy, holy living should always follow the grace that we received in Christ. It shouldn't come before, which is why in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one should boast, okay? He makes it very clear that we do nothing to contribute to our salvation. It's all Christ's work on the cross. And then he goes on in verse 10 afterwards and says, for now, those in Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we weren't just saved from the penalty of sin, which is what happened at justification the moment we trusted in Jesus. We were declared righteous in God's eyes. Now we've been given his spirit that comes and dwells within us and we have everything that we need to live a godly life because we have the same power that Jesus had. But what should motivate us to live this way now is, is all of what Christ has done. Not so that he will be more pleased with us. He's fully pleased with us because of Jesus Amen? All right. Third, third barrier that keeps us from wanting to pursue holiness is, is when we believe God is withholding from me. We think that God doesn't actually know what's best and that he really doesn't know what he's doing and that God's actually trying to keep me from enjoying my life and flourishing, and his commands, they don't feel like a blessing. They feel like a weight. 
Listen, this is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. They had everything that they needed. And Satan goes to them and says, twisting God's word, did God truly say that you can't have or eat of any of the fruit in the garden, which isn't what God said? And Eve's like, no, 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 he didn't say that. He said we can have of every fruit in the garden, but one, we must not eat of this because the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. Satan goes, you won't surely die. For God knows that if you eat of it, you're gonna be like him. Tempting them with this idea that God is, is wicked and stingy with his hands behind his back and his fingers crossed that he's trying to withhold from them. When in reality, what happened? They ate of it and it led to their death. And it led to all the pain and suffering that we've experienced. Okay, God's not trying to withhold from us. In 1 John 5, John writes this. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. All right, same topic as Paul's talking about when he's speaking to the Ephesians here, that this is for Christians, right? If you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. This is for Christians, for those who've trusted in Jesus. Now we should obey God's commandments. And he says in verse three, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not meant to be heavy. They're meant to bring us joy and be life-giving and to help us flourish. You see, sin, on the other hand, will always overpromise and then underdeliver, time and time and time again. And in reality, we, we know that we can trust God. How? Because he hasn't withheld anything from us. The song we just sang about, about our sin being what held his son on the cross as he was punished in our place, had me tearing up. And it should. Because none of us deserve this. But he's good, and we can trust him. Okay? All right, hard shift. Here we go. Um, uh oh. There's a wealthy man, all right? And um, let me find my notes. Could exit out real quick? I'm going to tell you a story after I find these notes. This is a harder shift than I thought it was going to be. All right. Here we go. So there's this wealthy man, really hard shift, okay? And, uh, and it, he wants to find a, a husband for his daughter, okay, his prized possession. And so he calls all the young lads in the land and says, hey, come to my house tomorrow, and we're gonna have a contest. And so they come over, and they're all hanging out in the guy's backyard. And he makes a big announcement, and he says, okay, the first young lad to come and swim across this pool can have my daughter's hand in marriage and half of my wealth, okay? It's theirs, all right? And so then he goes, the only catch is, is this pool's filled with tons and tons of crocodiles and hundreds of poisonous snakes. And all of a sudden, it's just silent. And then, you hear a splash, and this young lad is swimming, and within seconds, he makes it across the pool, and there's applause, and everybody freaks out. Ah, it's crazy. And the guy goes, the father goes to, to, to the young lad and says, man, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And he says, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And he goes, no, man, not really interested in that. I just, 
I just want to know who pushed me in the pool. <laughs> you see, fear can be a great motivator, right? But the three barriers I just mentioned, they do the opposite, okay? They hinder us. <laughs> Heart shift. <laughs> they rob us from joy. When we call holiness legalism, we don't understand why we shouldn't pursue holiness, what motivates it. And then thirdly, when we believe God is withholding good things from us, these three barriers actually rob us from wanting to walk in obedience to Christ. I, I know for me, for, for after I was a Christian, there was a five-year period from 13 to 18 to where pornography felt like it just ruled my life and dominated me. And that I had, I, had I, I didn't like God's commands. I felt like this was way too hard. It doesn't make any sense why you would call me to, to flee sexual temptation. I felt like I had no way out. And the, I didn't begin to find victory and fighting pornography until I was a freshman in college. And the turning point was that I began to be discipled by this guy named Andrew. And Andrew would boast in his weaknesses, as that song talked about. And he would be very quick to confess the things that he struggled with because Andrew knew who he was because of what Christ had done. And it freed him to be able to walk transparently in the light and begin to, to find victory in the things that he struggled with. And he then wanted to, knowing that, hey, that's not who I am anymore. Because of Jesus, I'm a new creation. I've been called to walk in new life. And the more we know Jesus and know what he's done and believe the gospel, then the more that we will want to fight our sin and do whatever it takes. As Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And that was so freeing for me. Right, that I didn't, like, I was saved at this time. I had trusted in Jesus. But in that moment, in hiding my sin and not wanting to, to really take the significant steps to fight, it was because I wasn't believing the gospel. I wasn't trusting him. And let me be really clear. Okay, sin, again, I, I said this, will always overpromise and underdeliver. But I want to be extremely clear as that my marriage now is not better because of those five years of pornography and the baggage that I dragged into my marriage. It's not better. God knew what he was doing when he gave us these commands. And he wants what's best for us. Now, he can redeem those things. And that's not who I am. But do you see the shift? Okay. And this is why I believe, Mercy Hilda, if you've been with us, we've been going through Ephesians, six chapters. The first three are all about the theology of how God has saved us, what he's done, the great lengths he's, he's gone to reconcile us to himself by God first choosing us before he even laid the foundation of the world, then sending his son to redeem us by his blood, the spirit to seal us and save us. And then in Ephesians 2, we see that it's by grace through faith. Before we get into, okay, chapter four, now and light of everything that God has done for us in Christ. Here's how we should live. And I want us to see that, that if, we, if we miss this, we're not gonna wanna pursue holiness. We gotta start where he starts and remember the gospel constantly. And the better we understand our salvation, how it works, and the more that we're gonna want to walk in obedience to Christ. And so with this in mind, let's uh, begin to talk about our passage about this new good life that God has called us and freed us 
his forgiven children to be able to walk in. Okay, so we're gonna see five commands in these verses, five ex- exhortations, if you will. And in and, and each one, there's gonna be a, a negative, a, a what not to do, and then a positive what to do, and then a, a reason that, that Paul gives. Doesn't mean it's the only reason, but a reason. So verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So here's a negative, all right? He says, stop deceiving. Stop living in deceit. This could be telling lies, spinning webs. This could be false teachers who are preaching a message that's contrary to what the Bible says and that it's Jesus plus something. Well, we saw that for centuries where the Catholic church would, would, would make people pay to have their sins forgiven, pay money, indulgences. This is in, in history. Not for forthcoming with the truth, withholding truth. Typically, people do this because they want to lord what they know over somebody else so that they can get the things that they want. But there's another reason too like in my story, because I didn't want to bring my sin into the light because I wanted to hide and pretend I was better than I actually was. But the gospel frees us from that because Christ has made us clean. We can be known. And so rather than deceiving, Paul says, we should speak with truth. We're called to be true speakers. That we build one another up in biblical truth. See, before we knew Christ, this was our nature. We were deceived ourselves. And then we were deceitful, deceiving, deceiving others around us. That's, that's how we lived. But now because of Christ, we can see our eyes have been opened and we know that we have purpose and he's given us what we need to live differently, okay? And the reason that he gives is because he says that we are members of one another. You see that? If you're in Christ, you've now been adopted into his new family. The most important thing about you now is that you're in the family of God, that you are a son or daughter of God. And if the church, right, this is the church. It's two types of people, those who trust in Jesus, those who have not, those who, who, who now have the spirit and those who don't, right? Those who are in the family of God and those who aren't. And what he's saying is the moment that we trust in Jesus, we've been brought into his family and now we are to live in unity with one another is how Paul starts chapter four. We live in deceit, there's gonna be suspicion. We're not gonna be able to flourish. We're not gonna be able to build one another up in Christ. Okay? Next exhortation, verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay? Negative command, avoid sinning when angry. The positive is instead have righteous anger towards the things that God hates. Now that sounds weird to us sometimes. And later in the passage, it's, it's gonna say like to lose anger. So it's, it can't be talking about the same thing because we look at Jesus's life and there were things that made Jesus angry, right? Like when he walked into the temple that time and, and the Jews, his people that God had chosen to bless all the nations of the earth, what they do, they, they set up shops so that the Gentiles, those from every other nation and tribe, they, they wouldn't have a place to worship God. They abused the gift that God had given them. And Jesus went 
you know, what seemed ballistic. He started flipping tables and whatever, but it was a righteous anger, which was good. And God hates sin. And there's moments in our life to where, yeah, we should be angry. But what he's saying is don't let it lead to sin. Don't give the devil a foothold there. If my wife, right, is, and I see her, Lindsay, and that she's, she's wronged by someone or she's sinned against, that's gonna make me angry, and it should. But I'm not permitted to be able to go and, and become embittered toward that person and to not forgive that person. Because apart from Christ, I'm no different. And we begin to think thoughts like, oh, I would never do that, or I could never do that. That's not okay. All right, he's saying avoid that. And this isn't a permissive, permissive statement to, to, to just, you can be angry as much as you want as long as you don't sin. No, he's saying there are things in life that we should be angry at, like sin and injustice. And boy, has our culture today really dismissed this idea, not like it, right? Culture will say that if you disagree with someone, then you're not loving or you're discriminating, but this thinking is not biblical. It's not That's culture. As Christians, we must hold to God's word and what it says, and it is the final authority. Okay, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love how it also says that let the thief, because there there are no perfect people, and only thieves and adulterers, and the wicked have received God's grace. And he says, let the thief no longer steal because that's not who he is anymore. Rather, let him labor, let him work. God has given us these bodies that we should work for his glory, for his purposes. And then he gives the reason why. What does he say? So that we'll be able to share with those around us. If we don't work, we won't have any resources, finances to be able to bless those around us and meet their needs. And think about how different it was from before we knew Christ. It was how much can I take? How much can I have? Give me, give me, give me. Now it's, man, let me leverage the things that God has given me for his glory and his purposes. So contrary to the world. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Here's the negative, right? Don't talk corruptly anymore. That's not who you are. This could be slander, right? Tearing others down, typically so that we feel better about ourselves, or gossip, right? Talking about someone when they're not around. I I, I remember this phrase has always stuck me. Our our pastor back when I was in Baton Rouge said this um, right before we went on, you know, uh, a summer mission trip that was like eight week long, and, and there was 12 other students with us, and we're really gonna have to fight for unity because we're living in like three bedrooms, the 12 of us, okay? And so uh, he said this. He said, I will never say anything about you unless I'm with you and only for you, never against you. Like, man, think about the fights and the conflicts that would be not had if we lived that way. It's not that we can't praise someone behind their back. That's a, that's a good thing. But just the idea that, hey, I'm not gonna say anything about you unless I would say it to your face. And only things that are gonna build you up and be for you, never against you. He says, instead, right, only such as is good for building up. 
not to tear others down. Verse 30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we sin, and we have to understand this, guys, it, it, it grieves God's spirit that's in us. And it's so contrary to who we are. God absolutely hates sin. And his spirit now lives in us. So every time that we aren't living, as Paul says, how we should live here, which for me is often, it grieves God. It grieves him. But notice in verse 30 how he says, by whom you were sealed. And I think for a second, like this seems kind of out of context. Like why would, he, why would he say that right here? But I think it's so important and that's right there. Because he knows that we're gonna fail and we're not gonna be able to do this perfectly. That the Christian life is, is repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Yes, the first time we were justified, but now we don't just stop. We continue to be able to fight sin. Now we have his spirit in us. It gives us power to fight sin. And we're sealed. We're secure. So when we fall short, we know that God's word is true in Romans 8, that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love that we have in Christ. That nothing can change that. Sealed until Christ comes back or we die and meet him face to face. Praise God. Think of a, of, a, of a piece of paper that's been laminated, right? Once a piece of paper is laminated, the ink can't be smudged anymore. It can't be changed. If it drops in the mud, you just clean it right off. If it gets wet, it's not gonna tear a break. Nothing can change who God has declared us to be in Christ from the moment that we trust in him. We've been sealed. And it's this kind of stuff that should drive us to want to continue to desire to walk in his ways. Verse 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Lastly, he says, hey, drop these six things and instead adopt these other three. The six are bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. None of these have space in light of the gospel. Instead, he says, adopt kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Ultimately, guys, because of Christ, we're called to begin to one, to, to love one another, live in peace with one another. To be tenderhearted is to be compassionate and gentle towards those around us. And then he says, and to forgive others. All people we are called to forgive when they wrong us. And then he says, notice it's not forgive others and do these things so that you will be forgiven by God, but it's straight back to the gospel. It says, as God in Christ forgave you, you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed. You are right with him now. Now go and live in who I've created you to be. This is the extreme makeover that we're talking about that Paul wants us to begin to walk in. And godly living, guys, is, is evidence of our salvation. It's not a requirement of it. It comes after. In 2 Peter, Paul says that because we now have the Holy Spirit in us, we have everything that we need to live a life of godliness. And then he says, therefore, make every effort to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, brotherly, brotherly kindness, 
brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours, then you are gonna bear fruit. You're gonna look different. And he says, but, and, and, and often I think about my life and, and when it's not like that and it's been, well, I need to do more things. And he says, it's not going to church more, reading your Bible more. It says, for he who lacks these things, he who is not living in light of how he's been called to live, it's not that they're not saved. It's that he's been forgotten that he's been cleansed from his sins, not that he hasn't been cleansed from his sins. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. So many of you right now might be feeling weighed down, whether it's from, from sin from this this weekend, sin from this morning, as you walked in, maybe talking to your spouse, ugly, or just stuff that you've been hiding. Guys, we cannot put the cart before the horse here. We must go back and remember the work that Christ has done to make us clean, to make us new. And then begin to pray, confess our sin, walk in repentance and faith, knowing that, hey, when we fall, my position with God doesn't change. He's made me new. And here's my hope for us. And this is for believers. That we would be excited about pursuing holiness with one another. That God's commands for us here would be something that we delight in. That we would passionately pursue obedience to Christ, not because God will love us more, but so that we would grow in our holiness and grow in our love for God. And so that we will flourish as individuals and then flourish as a church, Mercy Hill, and that Cincinnati would notice and that the world would notice that there's something different about them. And when they ask, we would be so quick to proclaim Jesus and point to the one who has forgiven us. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and that it's, it's true. Thank you that you have gone great lengths to redeem us, to make us alive in Christ. And that from the moment that we are redeemed, nothing can change our position with you. We're sealed. We're kept by your power, not our own. And not only have you freed us from the penalty of sin, Lord, but you have given us power over sin. And we know the gospel truth that one day you're coming back and you're gonna unite all things and there will be no more sin. It won't be in our presence. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering. That's why we gather here this morning, because we want to remember that and keep our eyes fixed there and fixed on your kingdom so that we wouldn't continue to live for ourselves, but we would drop the things that you're calling us to drop. Lord, if there are people here right now who have a weight on them because they're still trying to earn salvation, earn right standing with you, Lord, would you humble them and tell them and show them that nothing that they can do will make them right with you. But would they see the way that they can be? And that's through Christ, through trusting in him and his work. Praise you, God. Thank you for this morning. Amen.